We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5 and Nehemiah chapter 8 because we're overachievers, two chapters in a row. If you're new to Regen, we kind of take the Netflix approach to the Bible. Um, Right now, we are binge-watching a show in my house called Night Shift. I think it's an NBC show from the summers. It's like ER stuff. I don't know. And uh, But we, in my house, you kind of pick one show and as much as you can watch the whole thing from beginning to end. That's kind of what we'd like to do with scripture is read one book at a time. Uh, we'll actually break that rule for a series that we're going to be doing starting in, uh, later on this month. The series is called This Is Us. Um, yes, from the show. Uh, and uh, so we're excited about that, and then we're gonna, but we are going to go back to our binging on the book of Ruth around Christmas, and on we go. So um, go ahead and turn with me to your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. There's Bibles under the pews. Google it. Do whatever you need to do. It's fun to be in it together. The book of Nehemiah, which we've been in for a little while here, the book of Nehemiah is 13 chapters long. And if you're just jumping in, Nehemiah is a guy who returns to his home city of Jerusalem to rebuild that city's wall, which seems kind of like a strange passion. But Nehemiah is motivated by the trouble and disgrace of his people. Nehemiah hears from a cousin of his, Hanani, that his people living in a place called Judah, Jerusalem, it's modern-day Israel to us now, that they were in great trouble and disgrace. Nehemiah finds that God calls him to do something about that trouble and disgrace. So Nehemiah goes uh, to his hometown to rebuild this wall. But Here's what's interesting. Nehemiah is 13 chapters long, and in chapter 6, the wall is finished. In chapter 6, the wall is done. And yet there's still seven chapters after that, which leads us to ask the question, well, what's going to happen next? But we have to remember that for Nehemiah, this was never really about a wall. For Nehemiah, the trouble and disgrace of his people was deeper and more concerning than just a wall. I mean, last year, last year, last week, uh, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 4 and chapter 6, these stories where Nehemiah faces incredible opposition from other local governors in and around Judah to him building this wall. And somehow Nehemiah keeps putting one foot in front of the other, keeps putting one brick on top of the other, despite this opposition, because he trusts, He has faith in the God who quietly endeavors on our behalf, and that's where his courage comes from. But in the middle of the stories of opposition of chapter 4 and chapter 6 is nestled chapter 5. Nestled chapter 5. And what Nehemiah comes to discover in Nehemiah chapter 5 is that his greatest challenges don't lie outside of the walls. His greatest challenges aren't found outside the walls of Jerusalem. No, his greatest challenges, his most significant opposition is found within the walls of Jerusalem. It's found in the hearts of the men and women living in and around that city. You know, Nehemiah builds this wall and he says that it was frightening and humiliating to the nations that heard of it. But suddenly he finds that though the wall is built, The work is just beginning. The hard work is really just getting started because the trouble and disgrace of his people wasn't ever just about a wall. It was about their hearts. And in Nehemiah chapter 5, he comes to grips with the real problems facing his people. So look with me at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Nehemiah writes this. He says, About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. 
They were saying, we have such large families, we, we need more food to survive. Others said, we have mortgaged our fields and vineyards and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, this is verse 4, we have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs, but we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. A quick confession would be that I don't understand money at all. I I was working full-time for nine months when I finally looked at my wife and I said, so time out, your annual salary is like a bucket of water. And every time you spend money, it's like you take a little spoon and flip some of that water out. The goal would be to make sure you don't run out of water before the end of the year, right? And she says to me, honey, you're 26 years old and you're just figuring this out now. I said, I'm just telling you, this is how it is. I I have no idea. My wife does all of our finances because if I did them, we would like not eat food ever. Um, I have no idea. So we get in this text in Nehemiah 5 and it's like mortgages and taxes and loans and I'm like glazing over hard, right? Like make it stop. Like what, what's going on in this text? But, but what, we're really, what we're gonna see in, this, in these little verses is this is not about uh, just personal bankruptcy. This is not about people's pocketbooks. This is a bankruptcy of conscience. This is a crisis of conscience. Because really in these five verses, Nehemiah tells us that four things are happening for the people of Jerusalem and the people of Judah. And the first is pretty obvious. They don't have enough food. I mean, when Nehemiah showed up in Judah about a month before this and called everybody to come build on the walls, he really meant everyone. So farmers like laid down their tools and left their fields behind in the middle of harvest. It's September when this is all happening. They leave their stuff behind and they just go build the walls, which sounded like a good idea at the time, but now their cupboards are running empty and the prices in the market are getting so high. And so in order to feed their families in a famine, we discover in a famine, what they start doing is they start mortgaging uh, their, their, their property. They mortgage their house. They, they mortgage their vineyards. Uh, they mortgage their land. I don't think Dave Ramsey would approve of this. Um, uh, I, I, if you don't know Dave Ramsey, he's kind of this Christian money guru guy, and it's all about like money and envelopes, people. No credit cards, da da da, da. And uh, Dave Ramsey, this is not the Dave Ramsey approach. They're, I mean, imagine uh, you're out of food, so you put a mortgage on your house so you can go to McDonald's and get some food. I mean, they're mortgaging this way. And the other problem is, not only do they not have enough money to really pay, even just put food on the table, it's tax season for these people. And the taxes of the Babylonian empire were nothing to shake a stick at. I mean, this is kind of how Babylon kept control of a multinational, multi-ethnic empire, the largest of its time, by, by taxing you to death. So they don't, not only do they not have money to put, on, put food on the table, now they're mortgaging their stuff uh, to... to to pay their taxes, okay, and then it gets worse because some of them are in such financial straits, some of them are pushed to the brink, where the only way that they know how to get some money is to sell their sons and daughters into slavery. They put their sons and daughters into bondage. Now, one terrible thing is they put their sons and daughters into bondage in houses and, uh, of foreign nations. That's bad enough, but it gets even worse because what you come to find out throughout Nehemiah chapter 5 is not only have they sold their, their sons and daughters into slavery to foreigners, they've sold their sons and daughters into slavery to each other. Jews are buying each other's kids. And, and, and here's the root issue of this. Remember, it's not a personal financial crisis. This is a crisis of conscience in the hearts of Israel. 
It's a crisis of conscience that they express well in chapter 5, verse 5. They say, we belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. We belong to the same family. When God set up the nation of Israel, he did not set them up to run as a nation. He set them up to run as a family. And now family members, quote unquote, are taking advantage of each other's distress and charging huge interest on loans that they're giving to each other. They're taking each other's kids in bondage. I mean, this would be like Vanessa and Steph running out of food and and say, I'll give you 500 bucks for Ollie. (laughs) Okay, that sounds exciting this weekend, I can see. Um, um, There's a problem with this. There's a problem at the level of Israel's hearts. They're not supposed to just treat each other like business partners. They're supposed to treat each other like family. They've forgotten the law of Moses. Say, for example, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, which I think I have, Dan. God gets so clear as to say, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, which includes interest on money, food, or anything that is lent for interest. If you're loaning among, to each other and the people of God, don't charge for interest. You can charge a foreigner interest, he says, but you can't charge interest to one of your brothers. Instead of behaving like family, Israel's behaving like these pawnbrokers and like payday cash advance places. I'll give you that $500, but I'll also charge you 50% interest over six months. I mean, that's crazy. I should have just given you that. Really, at its core, this was not a time for loans. This was a time for gifts. This was a time for generosity. This was a time for, hey, I know it's really bad, but we're all devoted to this work together. So what I'm going to do, Vanessa, is I'm, I'm just going to cook you food. Why don't you just come over for dinner? Not I'll loan you that money and I'll take your son in the process. I mean, Nehemiah gets so mad. In verse 6, he says, when I heard their complaints, I was very angry. And then in verse seven, he says, after thinking it over, I don't think that's strong enough. Another way to render that is after taking counsel with myself. It's as if Nehemiah said, okay, self, do you ever hype yourself up this way or bring yourself down that way? Like, whoa, Kyle, hang on, let's breathe. Let's not yell, let's not, mm, okay. After taking counsel with myself, Nehemiah says, I spoke out against these nobles and officials and I told them you're hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. And I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. This was this, this great poverty of the people called not for gifts, I mean, not for loans, it called for gifts, but they were loaning each other. They were taking each other's kids in slavery. In a matter of moments, what Nehemiah thought he came to do is suddenly not what he's actually there to do anymore. I mean, this is at the end of chapter four into chapter five. In chapter six, they build the walls. I mean, in chapter six, really the only thing left to do is hang the doors on the gates. The wall is pretty much done. The project is complete. If I'm Nehemiah, I'm starting to get excited. I'm starting to think, all right, it is time for a vacation. I'm going to go to the Mediterranean. There will be little umbrellas in my drinks. And all of a sudden, Nehemiah comes to grips with the fact that the problems facing Israel, that the trouble and disgrace of his people are so much deeper because here's what's, guys, here's what's happening. And this is why we're linking five and eight. They've broken covenant with God. They've fallen out of the relationship they're called to. I mean, plain and simple, they're living in sin. And so now Nehemiah realizes that he is going to have to do a whole other kind of work that his people are truly and deeply a whole other kind of fixer-upper. But what I love about Nehemiah is he's kind of a one-time, one-thing-at-a-time kind of guy. 
And so in Nehemiah chapter 5, he gets them all together. And Nehemiah does some crazy stuff. He makes sure that everybody cancels each other's loans. Uh, he, he uh, out of his own pocket, starts buying people food. He buys back slaves from foreign nations. I mean, he's trying to solve this problem in the short term. And then in chapter 6, they get back to building the wall. I mean, that's why we're here, one thing at a time. In chapter 7, if, you, if you're having trouble sleeping tonight, grab your Bible, go to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7 is when Nehemiah takes a census of everyone uh, living in the city and in Jerusalem and in, and in Judea and in Judah. It's, it's great reading. It's our favorite parts of the Bible. So if you're having trouble sleeping, there you go. Um, and then in chapter 8, he does something really crazy. And, and chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, this is really where the meat of the book really comes in. This is when Nehemiah really gets to work on the fixer-upper that are his people's hearts. This is when Nehemiah really gets down to business. Nehemiah is engaged now in the last half of this book in a, in a construction project for sure. But he doesn't need stonemasons. He doesn't need builders or architects. He needs a specialist, but he needs someone that doesn't specialize in physics and weight and levers and pulleys. He, he needs a specialist in law and in covenant and in scripture. And so he calls Ezra the priest. In chapter 8, Nehemiah calls Ezra the priest to join with him in this work of the fixer-upper. And so look at what chapter 8 says. Not a lot of the verses are going to be on the screen. In October, when the Israelites had settled into their towns, all the people of Israel assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law. This is probably the book of Deuteronomy, just in case you're wondering. Brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. Notice that word understand. Four times repeated in chapter 8. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To his right stood a number of people whose names are very hard to pronounce. To his left stood another handful of people whose names are very hard to pronounce. Although there, you do see in there the name Zechariah. He's one of the prophets so the, in the minor prophets in your scriptures. There's a guy named Zechariah. That's him. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. And when they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands, and they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, again, whose names are rather confusing, then instructed the people in the law. Notice this. They then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read helping people understand each passage. So picture this, there's Ezra with the scroll. So they didn't have books, they had scrolls. Ezra is reading from the, the scroll for Deuteronomy and, and he's reading it so what? That people understand, 
right? Because it's very easy to read the Bible and just kind of read it. He wants them to understand. So not only does he read it and teach it, he also sends other priests, other Levites into the crowd where they form little small groups. So it'd be like Vanessa taking kind of you five and Harry taking you guys and a little group here and a little group here and going back through it. Every day they're having a Bible study, by the way. I mean, come on, we, you, get, you get to do this for like a half hour a week. We're talking from early in the morning till noon for days on days on days. They're doing this and they're having this Bible study and the Levites are amongst them making sure that not only do they hear the word, but they understand it because here's what's happened is Israel has forgotten who they are. This, 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 this financial issue in Nehemiah 5 is a symptom of this really deeply, profoundly concerning issue, which is Israel doesn't know who they are anymore and they don't know who they are anymore because they don't know the Lord anymore. And so Ezra bringing the, bringing the scroll out is his first like relaying of the foundation of Israel's covenant. He spends all of eight and nine and 10 doing this. Having small groups, having these Bible studies, they've forgotten who they are. And, and, and a crazy thing happens in Nehemiah 8. As Israel hears the book of the law read to them, they remember who they are. It's like they look in a mirror and all of a sudden they see like every spot and blemish and pimple. At a deeper level, something really fascinating happens too in in Nehemiah 8, which is the people come to this experience, which we talk about a lot here, which is when God's word is explained, God's voice is heard, is one of the things you may hear me say often. When God's word is explained, God's voice is heard. So here they are explaining God's word to the people so that they'll understand it. And all of a sudden, they hear God's voice. They hear God's voice. They hear a voice they have not heard in a really long time. And, and last week, you may remember if you were here, I made this comment that nowhere in all of Nehemiah do you see a sentence that says, and the Lord said. Never once is there a sentence where it says, the Lord said to Nehemiah, da 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 The Lord said to the Israelites, da 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 Never says a thing until chapter eight and nine and 10. Suddenly the quiet God gets very, very loud in the people's ears as the book is read. Chapter nine is this resuscitation of like everything that has ever happened to Israel as a people. And if you do word counts, in chapter nine, when God speaks to the people through his word, he gets the largest chunk of dialogue in the whole book of Nehemiah. It's not that God didn't have anything to say, it's that he didn't have anything new to say. It's not that God didn't have anything to say, it's that he was waiting for his moment. And the moment was when all the people were gathered with their ears open, men and women and children, and Ezra rolls out the scroll and starts teaching them through what God has said to them in his word. And they hear the voice of God. They hear the voice of God in Ezra 8, I mean, Nehemiah 8. They hear it, it's almost like Ezra's voice fades out and it's God is speaking to them through this document and they see themselves and they realize how far they've come. They have this moment of, of, of just absolute sorrow. In fact, look at what happens in verse nine of chapter eight. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Verse 11, and the Levites too quieted the people, telling them, hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. Guys, they hear God's word. 
They hear the Lord speak to them and they weep. Seven years of biblical higher education. I'm in my eighth. And I kind of know this document. I'm familiar with it. I don't often have encounters where when I hear it, I weep. But Moses said of the very book that they're probably hearing, he said, these are not empty words. These are your very life. These are not empty words. These are your very life. They hear these words. They hear these words explained to them. They hear God's voice in them and they, and they weep. And Ezra says, well, it's about time, you jerks. And Nehemiah says, you dirty, dirty sinners, repent. He does not preach them a hellfire sermon. What does he say? He says, don't weep. Isn't that crazy? God doesn't speak to them and be like, well, it's about time you showed up. It's about time you got your junk together, people. No, he's just glad that they showed up at all. Because scripture says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, that mercy triumphs over judgment. They hear these words and they're told, don't weep, don't weep. For this is a sacred day. In fact, they're told to go eat and feast and celebrate. Why? Because what was once lost has now been found. Do you remember that from the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? That there's this young man who takes his inheritance early before his dad dies, which is about the biggest middle finger anybody could give their parent. Uh, you know, I don't really care about you, but I do want your money. Um, and so he goes and spends it all on reckless living, quote unquote. If you don't know what reckless living is, kids, go home and ask your mom. And, um, and, 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 they, and, they, and he comes back and the dad says, I'm going to throw a party. The dad doesn't say, well, it's about time. Dad doesn't say, well, you better get to work to pay me that back. The dad says, how can I not celebrate for this son that I thought was dead is now alive. What was lost is now found. Of course they celebrate. Of course they celebrate. And there's more heart work to do in chapters 9 and 10, and we'll see that next week. There's there's more covenanting that needs to be done. But here's what we discover in in Nehemiah 8 and 5. Here's what we learn. We learn that it is far easier to do things for God than to be God's people. It is way easier, way easier to do things for God than it is to be God's people. It is way easier to do things for him than it is to be with him. And I get that. Doing things for God, that's tangible. That's easy. It's concrete. It's got beginning, middle, and end. I would have loved to build that wall. I hate physical labor, but I would have been the first to sign up because I can do something for God now and I can grab the bricks and I can stir the mortar and I can lay it down. And even if I'm carrying a sword because those enemies might come at any time, even if behind me there's a guy with a spear and a trumpet just waiting to see if the enemies come down. I mean, I get this. I get working for God. I get working for him. I get doing stuff for him. You're part of a church where we believe that it's important that our faith be active. So we do a one thing every month and we check in and we're inviting you to do stuff with your faith. But in this text, we learn that it's easier to do things for God than it is to be with him. There, there is this tension. When you start to follow Jesus, there is a tension and it pulls in opposite directions. And the tension is this, on the one hand, our inner beliefs, our inner transformation absolutely must have outward signs. It absolutely must have outward action attached to it. I mean, if you were here when we preached through James, you remember that he says, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? He says, I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. 
On the one hand, there's this, there's this piece where the inward transformation must work itself out in the decisions we make and how we spend our time and who we spend our time with and how we spend our money and, and where we go and what we do. But on the other hand, if inward transformation without outward action is, is faith that is dead, outward action without inward transformation is equally as deadly. Outward, trans, outward action without inward transformation is just as deadly. Guys, it is possible to spend your life doing Christian things without ever encountering the Christ that you claim to do them for. It is possible to spend your entire life doing Christian things without ever encountering the Christ that you're doing them for. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, this is why Jesus, Jesus messes with you. He says in chapter 7 of Matthew, go home and read this if you want, it's not on the screen. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my heavenly Father who is in heaven, on that day, on the day at the end of all time, when we see Jesus face to face, all of us, he says, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says at the end of time, people are going to look at him and say, Lord, didn't I go to church? Didn't I wear sweatpants and bring him? I mean, didn't I, didn't, which that'll, I hope Jesus chuckles at that. But, uh, you know, di- di- didn't I do the right things? Didn't I give my money? Didn't I go on the missions trips? Didn't I, didn't I do this, this? Didn't I check all of the boxes? And Jesus is going to look at us and say, I, I, he's going to look at that person and say, I never knew you. Because that was a person who spent their life doing Christian things without ever encountering the Christ that they sought to do them for. This is a person who found that it was easier to do things for God than it is to be his people. Here's here's the gospel version of this. That's the challenge. Here's the invitation. Jesus isn't looking for servants. He's looking for friends. Jesus isn't like trying to recruit people to get things done. Jesus isn't trying to recruit people to accomplish tasks. Jesus, I, I use Wonderlist. It's an app on my phone, and I share it with some of our staff, and it's how we keep track of what's getting done. Jesus doesn't have this Wonderlist uh, that he's just trying to recruit people to and add them to because he wants to get stuff done. Jesus isn't looking for servants. He's looking for friends. He doesn't want you to do stuff for him. He just wants to be with you. He doesn't want you to do stuff for, he doesn't want you doing stuff for him. He wants to be with you, which is why in Isaiah, when we first learn of this coming Messiah, they say his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. That said, welcome to the tension. It's, it's easy, but it sure isn't simple. You become like the five people you spend the most time with. You become like the people you spend the, you spend the most time with, the five people especially. When you spend time with Jesus, something changes in you. And you start to know it in the way you think and the way you talk and what you post on Facebook. You start to notice it in the way you spend your money. I mean, some of you in the last six months have like started going to church all the time and your families are like, I'm sorry, what now? <laughs> some of you like are giving money and like serving and doing all these things in your family. It's like, um, so what's your priest's name again, right? Oh, he's my pastor. What's the difference? I don't know. I mean, 
I'm married. That's the difference, you know? Like, hallelujah. But we, we, we start to go to this. When we spend time with Jesus, something starts to change about us. Yesterday, I, I hung out with Aaron. And I, in order to make that happen, a few things needed to happen. In order to hang out with Aaron, I kind of needed to text him, when are you working? Well, I'll be here, and this is then, and I'm going to do this, and da 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 So we managed to, like, connect at about, like, 3 o'clock yesterday, but it took some effort to, like, clear the space uh, to make that happen. Being with Jesus does require us to expend some effort to clear space for that relationship to happen. But if it's only effort without space for relationship... This is what it means to do things for God instead of to be with him. But if we leverage effort to create time in our schedules, to practice, say, the spiritual disciplines that we worked through in our series on prayer this summer, um, which is all online now, thanks, Vanessa, um, and you can get it through the Facebook page or SoundCloud or our website, which is about to change. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Jesus. It's so bad. Anyway, um, it requires effort Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning, Dallas Willard says, and so we expend effort to create space to be with Jesus. We don't expend effort doing only things for Jesus. Jesus says in John 15, this fascinating thing, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Well, that's intimate. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide or remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. The goal, friends, is not Christian busyness, but gospel fruitfulness. The goal is not Christian busyness, it is gospel fruitfulness, which is in our own character and in the lives that we are part of transforming and mobilizing for Jesus. And so how do we do things for God while being with him? Let me be honest with you, you're going to go through seasons of doing one or the other better. Balance is something most of us only achieve while, while on our way to another extreme. And so you will find seasons where you're very good at being with Jesus and seasons where you're very good at doing things for Jesus and occasionally feel like you're doing both well. But, but here's, I'm in a, I'm being mentored right now by a pastor in Illinois and he asked us three questions in this small group I'm in. And you know, you have those moments when somebody, I mean, it was like a legit mic drop, mind blown, like where's as many gifts as I can get my hand on to express like, whoa, to the point where it's like, I think I might need to tattoo these things onto my arm to remember these three questions that I think help us do both well. And the questions are, what are we doing today? What are we doing today? What do I need to be reminded of today? And who do I need to pay attention to today? Technically, my English teachers in my mind are saying that last question would be something like, to whom ought I pay attention to today? Which, you know, I'm just not fancy enough for that. But here's a key thing. There's one word that has to go before each one of those sentences, and that word is father, comma. Father, what are we doing today? Father, what do I need reminded of today? Father, who do I need to pay attention to today? Father, what, do I, what are we doing today? Jesus said, this is crazy. Jesus says in John 6, why didn't I preach on this? We did John for like 30 years. Jesus says, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. My question anymore, if I'm in a one-on-one, -on -one, if I'm doing anything, quote unquote, for Jesus, my question is, Jesus, what are we doing? What are, what are, we, where, what are we up to right now? My next question is, what do I need to be reminded of today? Last Sunday, I was kind of having a discouraging day, <clears throat> and someone at Grace Campus gave us a quilt that they had spent nine months making for us. 
and it matches our bedroom stuff perfectly, which, you know, that's more my wife's department than mine, but I'm here to tell you it's true. Um, and then somebody texted me Sunday night with something that kind of kept me going all week. What do I need reminded of today? Somebody texted me a verse out of chapter six where Nehemiah says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I needed to be reminded not to come down. Who do I need to pay attention to today? Sometimes that's easy. If you're a parent, it's like yes and yes. But sometimes there's somebody that we wouldn't ordinarily pay attention to that the Lord brings to mind. This is how we kind of do things. Notice, notice what's happening. You're doing things with Jesus. You're not doing them for him. You're doing them with him. Because Jesus says, apart from doing it with me, you're doing nothing. And the way I've always tended to take that verse is when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He's saying, you can do a lot of things, but it'll all amount to nothing. If we want to do something, we have to be with Jesus first. What are we doing today? What do I need to be reminded of today? What do I, who do I need to pay attention to? Let's pray. God, we confess that it is way easier to do stuff for you. It is way easier to fill our lives with things to earn your favor and approval. But you, Jesus, you want to be with us. And so, God, where we need reined in, uh, would you rein us in? And where we need pushed, would you give us a shove? But, Jesus, we want to be with you, and we want to learn how to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.